You're listening to Boston Strongcast, a place where we talk all things powerlifting, strength, and the occasional scientific nerd session. I'm your host, Kevin Can, the owner of Precision Powerlifting Systems, strength coach and competitive powerlifter in the USAPL. Thanks for tuning in, and let's get stronger together. Hey guys, this is Kevin Can with Boston Strongcast. I'm going to jump on the mic here and do another solo one. Um, we were going to have a coach's corner this week, um, but we ended up having to reschedule a few things. So I think um, what I'll talk about today will kind of go nicely with last week's anyways. Um, the topic I want to cover today, I'm going to talk about a constraints-led approach in powerlifting. I'm going to kind of go through the process of me um, getting getting to this point, I guess, um, and my current understanding of it uh, and how we can kind of use it in terms of powerlifting in general. So um, I'm, I'm going to back up a little bit so... You know, currently, this is kind of what we do with the program. I call it a constraints-led approach, um, which I'll get, I'll get into the definition of. But when I had first started, so in undergrad and even grad school, like most of the material that we would talk about would just be basically general adaptation syndrome, stress-type stuff, uh, the overload principle, and law of specificity, all of these things, right? So basically periodization worked by each week you do a little bit more so you're overloading the person up to a certain point you deload and they somehow super compensate and come back stronger now it's just something that i always kind of held as being truth um you know you take people through it and they in some cases they see some really good results other times they don't um you know, it's a really unpredictable process. And then, I'm not sure how long ago now, but I got introduced, I actually think Mike Amato had sent this to me, um, to John Kiley's work in the paper titled Periodization Paradigms in the 21st Century, Evidence-Led or Tradition-Driven. Um, so basically, uh, in this piece, Kylie goes into explaining how these periodization models, so even though like our research on stress over the course of um, the last, I mean, Hans Seeley's stress research, I think was done around like 1930-ish, right? So like in almost 100 years, our stress research has come quite a long way. And we've kind of, you know, not taken that into consideration in terms of training philosophy and... I think we're, we're greatly missing the mark on a number of areas in which we could get better results from, you know, for us, from our lifters. Um, so basically, if mechanical stress was all that mattered, results would be predictable and reproducible, right? So if I have a lifter A, and if they do 10,000 pounds of volume over this period of time and they put 30 pounds on their total, I should be able to reproduce those results every single time. But we know that that's not true. Um, and at the time, because a, a lot of you know my network of colleagues that I talk to a lot about this stuff, they tend to be in the physical therapy side of things, so pain science. Um, we would discuss a lot, and like the physiological representation of pain definitely has, you know, psychological implications to it, like your emotions, perceptions, beliefs. Um, they're part of that that pain experience, and basically, physiologically speaking, with strength, it's the same thing. Your emotions, your beliefs, your perceptions definitely play a role in your strength. Not not play a role, but they are a part of that physiological strength. Um, and this old periodization model definitely misses the mark on that aspect of it. And I had and I had seen this um, as a coach. The very first time that I, I decided to just kind of say, fuck it, and let's just try something and see if it works. Like, Carrie, when she had first started, was scared of squatting two plates. And it was like one of those, like, you know, I think her best squat at the time was like 230 or, or something, like 235. Like, it was. 
it wasn't too much over that, so it was hard to get her to hit that those two plates. So we would work something up. So this is going to sound similar to a lot of the stuff that we do now. But we would find a variation. We would work, 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 work up until we get up to a heavy single, and hopefully we're touching two plates. So like pin squats, you would touch two plates. Um, I don't even – it's been so long I don't remember some of the other ones. But we would touch it as much as possible. And she kind of got confidence with the two plates, and her squat since has gone up quite a bit. Um, this was even before I had read this paper. So then after reading this paper, all the points that he had made about you know, it being unpredictable and the inability to reproduce results – um, and even if you, you know, we talk about super compensation and tapering strategies, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes lifters hit PRs in the middle of a block when fatigue should be high. And sometimes they don't hit those PRs on the platform when you taper them down and drop fatigue out of there. Um, I've always had this thing in the back of my mind, like, you know, I played sports through college, I played sports after college, and then like I get into powerlifting. And everybody's so worried about how tired they are. Like, that was never, never something we ever talked about um, at any point. Like, if you're tired on a given practice day, like, you're not conditioned. You should have been working harder. And, like, you know, coaches would kind of almost, like, beat that out of you over the period of time. Um and like this analogy that I would use, you know, somebody like LeBron James has gone to the NBA finals eight years in a row. They play 82 regular season games. He very rarely ever misses time. And on top of that, he's playing, you know, another three or four seven game series every single year. And he's not getting hurt. And what he, and he's averaging over 40 minutes a game. So somebody like that, what they actually go through on the court is a lot more than what we're going to go through in the gym doing a hard set or so. So when I started thinking about that and I was thinking about like Kerry's situation, I uh, we decided to start taking more like heavy singles in training. So it wouldn't be like hard sets constantly or heavy singles constantly, but you know, maybe once or twice every four to eight weeks, we'll take a, we'll throw a single in there and and kind of see what happens. At the time, the heavy singles, I was completely dictating by percentages because that's how I um, was doing my program. Is all percentage based. I was, and I still do this, and I was tracking everything. So number of lifts, average relative intensity, total tonnage, um, percent of lifts that are comp lifts, all of that stuff. I'm I'm tracking at the time. Um, I tried using RPEs and it, it didn't it didn't work at the current moment in time for for my group, um, you know. And at the time, I, I was so against using our RPEs because one, I'm I'm still clinging tight to that mechanical stress model of periodization, so the unpredictability of using RPEs on load. Um, just was something that I was not willing to deal with um, or something that I thought was actually valuable uh, to training. I thought it would, it would have more negative implications than positive implications. Uh, so we kind of took that out of it and I started, you know, later on I would use RPE as more of a monitoring tool for how hard that last set was for each of the lifters. Um, so they would run, basically run the numbers. I gave them a little bit of leeway. Um, Percentage-wise, they could kind of go up on one day, but if they did that, they'd have to go down on another because same thing. I was clinging so tight to this mechanical stress model of things where we need a high-stress day and low-stress days for recovery. And, you know, I, I talked about this on the last podcast. Like, these were just guesses of when they needed those days. I wasn't allowing the lifter's performance to kind of dictate when these things were, would occur. And, you know, I mean, this is this could get off topic a little bit, but we very rarely ever even had, like, little nagging things in the gym, right? And, like, in hindsight, those the lack of little nagging things probably means I'm not pushing everybody hard enough um, because those, those, you know, what we would call overuse 
type pains um, of probably a sign that there's fatigue in there. So I'm probably not even pushing people to the point of fatigue. And we're seeing decent success where everybody's putting, you know, two and a half to seven and a half kilos on each lift at each test. But I'm always somebody who's questioning, you know, could they have hit this? A few months ago, like, was that five to ten pounds there? Um, is it just a difference a day? Are they really getting stronger? How do, you know, how do we really know that like they're improving? I'm not measuring performance throughout the course of training. I'm measuring it at given points of time before competitions. Um, and you know, I would always talk about like feelings not dictating weight on the bar it's basically like if you use rps it's letting the inmates run the run the prison type of thing um but at the same time i was just on the opposite end of the spectrum i wasn't like being as adaptable as i probably should have been in reading john kiley's work it brought a lot of that to my attention the fact that i needed um a lot more adaptability as a coach that the program is only going to get you so far um, and it's just kind of a guide to follow, but you need to adjust day to day based off of the person in front of you. Um, you know, around the same time, maybe a little bit after I had read that, I got my hands on, I, th I think it was actually the same exact time, on Tim Gabbett's work uh, with the acute chronic work ratio. Um, so basically, this is, you know, a means of monitoring loads. Um, it seems to there seems to be a trend that during low periods of you know that our stress our training should fall within a certain range if it gets too low or too high our risk of injury could increase if there's a spike in workload um, I feel for powerlifting this is just it's a really easy means to track spikes in load um, just because we're using weight on the bar, it's 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 so tangible. Um, so I started like instituting this, making sure that our volumes are never getting too low or, or too high at any given point. That if I, I want to get them, I'm still at the current time here. I'm still really clinging to that mechanical stress model of things. Um, so if I want to bring somebody's volumes up to X amount of weight, it kind of gives me a time period in which I can safely do that. Um, so the acute chronic work ratio for me was just kind of like a guide of, all right, I want to get, I have this many weeks, I want to be able to push volumes to this amount, How? what's the safest route I can take to get there? Um, so this was working well. And, you know, I started, after reading Kylie's work, I started to become a little bit more... Um, flexible with the lifters and the loads on the bar. So before that, they weren't allowed to change the weight at all. Whatever the program says for a percentage, just run that given weight. So now I add in these intensity intervals, which based off of the rep scheme, and I kind of talked about this in the previous podcast, based off of the rep, rep scheme, um, they can go up to a certain percentage or down to a certain percentage. Now, like I would mentioned before, the acute chronic work ratio was dictating load on the bar. That's not what it should be. It's a great monitoring tool. It's not a program in and of itself. Um, and if they had gone over 5%, they actually had to drop the following day. So, you know, again, I said this earlier, but to repeat it, that way we would have enough lower stress days in there for recovery. But how do, how do we know that somebody needs recovery? Like, you know, when I'm on the internet, I'm seeing people push weights and push weights and push weights. It seems that they can almost do it on a, on a daily basis. And, you know, I'm kind of guessing more than um, being sure of things, right? And like, you know, there are times you push volumes, it works, times it doesn't. Um, so I, I started to kind of embrace the uncertainty of things a little bit more. And you know, what you see too, how you know, the emotions, the perceptions, the beliefs of somebody being a part of physiological strength, being a part of pain. Um, so, I, you know, I started kind of looking back at how I'm doing things and, you know, technique first. It's always been drilled into me from, you know, day one. 
so technique, it's just it's another word for skill, right? So I started to kind of try to figure things out from that perspective. Like I, I wanted to dive deeper down the hole of skill acquisition. Now, I, you know, I understand powerlifting might not be the most skilled sport, but it is a skill. It is a skill to, for one, um, emotions are high. It can be intimidating to lift heavy weights. As much as some of those, those, I'm putting air quotations up, old school powerlifters like to say how fucking tough they are because of how different it was back in the day, you know, chances are you're just as intimidated under the heavy weights as everybody else. Um, you know, and, and for a lot, handling those emotions is a is a it's a skill, right? It's part of that skill. Um, being precise with heavy weights, like when you're squatting, like if it gets really heavy, you can't misgroove it. A misgroove, you're probably not lifting it. Same with a bench. Same, you know, same with the deadlift. So, having you know enough skill within that lift to be able to uh, keep the bar in a path that allows you to lift it. You know, that is also a skill. Um, and I started looking more into skill acquisition, and I had come across the dynamic systems theory and constraints-led approach. Um, and when that had happened, I had reached out to, you know, the, the same my same group of colleagues and had asked if they had any stuff to read on these topics. Um Mike had sent me a picture of a textbook that he said is kind of like the the Bible for this stuff. Um, and where I had very little background, I was reading some of the papers and some of the concepts were hard for me to understand, like some of the terms and some of what they were doing. Um, just didn't make sense to me because I didn't have a strong background in it. So I actually, I got a different textbook. I got... Um, I think it was titled Nonlinear Pedagogy in Introduction to Skill Acquisition or something like that. But it was a very like um, basic textbook that kind of just laid out the fundamentals. And then the, the book that Mike recommended followed nicely with that. And then there's one that was written after that one um, that kind of carries on uh, with some of the same topics. So I decided to take this approach that even strength was a skill. And, you know, asked myself a bunch of questions like, what do we know and what don't we know? Like, me and Mike had actually done a seminar titled Embraced Uncertainty and gave me this idea that, like, you know, titling the seminar that and just thinking about, like, all the things within the powerlifting realm that we're just uncertain of. Like, how much volume is necessary to get stronger? Like, there's got to be, obviously, a bottom end and there's probably a top end. And training probably within that range is probably fine. What intensity is needed? Um, what amount of technique? Um, how much does fatigue, you know, I kind of was talking about this earlier. How much, how much does fatigue really affect performance, nutrition, sleep, all of these things. Like I, I have so many questions because some days you can be tired and still hit a PR. You can be on caloric deficits and see your numbers go up. Like we're just so unsure of so many things and it's never going to be one thing equals one result. You can't separate all of that from each other. That one person in front of you, their nutrition, their sleep, their mood, their training, all of that is one thing. And you can't separate the two, and you, as a coach, you always want to know the the reasons why something's working or not working, and to come up with that pinpoint answer. And like that was me, I, and basically the entire time, I was chasing the carrot on the stick. You you try, you're living in the past instead of planning for the future. And what I think when I'm I'm learning more about skill acquisition and about a constraints led approach, it's more about setting them up for the future and not looking looking at the past, right? It's using less words. So if somebody does a set and you're giving them feedback, and I, I still do this, and I think there's ways I can improve upon as a coach in, in the words that I use and how I actually address them for this feedback. But if I'm constantly giving them feedback about sets that have already been completed, I'm just 
we're living in the past, but if I set them up and put them in a position to gain an experience and we practice that position for as long as it takes to get better or till progress stops, that's more forward learning. So I'm setting them up in a way in which they can just continue continue to grow. So thinking about all, all the things we're unsure of and the things that I'm trying to control but not, there's no way to monitor them appropriately or even like, you know, I, I just, this is where that embrace uncertainty came from. So I decided to just treat it like a skill. It's what kind of um, I was familiar with just from my athletic background. And it was, you know, I think I have good intuition. I think I have a good eye for the technique of the lifts. I th- think I can be creative enough to get people in those positions that I want them to be in to get better. And we're just going to go from there. And those general mechanical stress principles, they still apply. I'm not saying that they're bullshit. It's you need enough stress, obviously, to get stronger. Volumes, number of lifts, all of that stuff. The acute chronic work ratio. So now, basically, what I'll do is I kind of just, we just run baseline volumes. Like, increasing volume is kind of another option I have when progress stalls Um, and in some cases like it's not even progress is slowing and I just want to load more weight on the bar we'll keep the number of lifts and stuff the same but maybe I'll just I'll give them an inflated max or something um, so that it it raises their volumes up a little bit and we'll just keep moving from there so I'm going through these books and reading this the constraints-led approach. Um, and a lot of it just kind of really flies in the face of a lot of the normal um, thoughts that we have. So one of them is with specificity. Um, I have always preached that you need comp lifts in there, and comp lifts should be in there all of the time. Um, but I was reading this one study where it was looking at tennis players and it was talking about skill of a two-handed backhand um, where a coach, this actually might have been in the textbook, a coach didn't like the way one of his athletes was performing that two-handed backhand. Um, So he needed to find a way to destabilize that movement pattern and to stabilize a new one. Um, so what he did was he gave the tennis player a ball to hold in one hand and they could only do one-handed backhands, right? So at that time, basically you're just changing. So before we move, your body perceives what that movement is going to feel like, um, just kind of, it, it perceives what it's about to go through and it pre-plans a motor strategy to complete the task. As the person goes through it, it receives, you know, the body receives sensory feedback. That sensory feedback goes into the next time that you do that same movement, goes into that same predictive process beforehand. So it had this perception of how that movement was going to be. You move a bunch of times, and now that perception model that you have before, it it has more data to compute to kind of figure out where you want to, you know, where the, the best strategy is to complete a task. So... I started thinking, like, man, if, if this is true, what I know about, what I thought I knew about the law of specificity is just, it's bullshit. It's not, it's not true. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pick a few people, and I'm just going to remove a comp lift from their training and just see how it goes. Um, so we've run, we ran cycles with zero comp bench, ones with zero comp squats, zero comp deadlifts, um, and then basically I'm just, I'm going to coach. So as opposed to writing programs and following the program and letting the program do the coaching, I'm going to do the coaching. So I put them, you know, analyzing what their comp lifts look like. I put them in positions that would kind of, and this is what a constraint-led approach is, so I, I should define this before we even get into it. So a constraint-led approach is basically you're altering a constraint. So the constraint basically of the person, the environment, and the task. So the person, like, the way that they're built and stuff is kind of who they are. In powerlifting, you're not really changing much, right? Um, this could be altering, like, toe flail, um, stance width. 
stuff like that to to make them more comfortable because of their anatomical builds. Environmental constraints is not really a big deal in powerlifting. However, it's stuff that we have to deal with here being in the northeast, like our gym's cold um, in the winter. It's really hot in the summer. Um, what you actually look look at and the feedback that you get from, from your eyes. So if you're squatting in the same rack, looking in the same place all the time, when you go to a competition, it could throw you off. I'm not sure how much of a deal it has. But like environmental constraints within sports, so we can use tennis, a clay court um, compared to a grass court. Um, you have boundary lines, you have net sizes, uh, the actual like ball size um no that, that would actually be task i'm sorry i'm getting ahead of myself um but it's actually like the the field to play and then task constraints would be like ball size racket size um so basically the equipment that you're using um you know a good example i think is like when i when i was playing soccer we would do like small sided games so they would constrain the size of the field to be something small so they'd alter the constraint of the field to be something smaller um, and in some cases you play like three on three with maybe a rule that they throw in there like you get two touches and you have to and it's a keep away game right so you have to be able to because of those altered constraints as the ball is coming towards you you have to shift your body towards where you want to get the ball and because you have to react so quickly to your defenders uh, you got to pick up on a lot of subtle inf information because the timing's just not there so based off of maybe the position of the defenders you know where your uh, teammate is and, and you start to position your body accordingly so that when you take a you know when you go into a normal game you're able to kind of complete those tasks uh, much better there's a there's a greater carryover it's more specific to the actual sport changing task constraints and powerlifting um, we can change the equipment so you can use different bars and stuff I don't tend to do that ever um, we kind of just use straight bars for everything but we can also alter the lift itself right we could pull sumo instead of conventional we can go wide or close stance on a squat we can alter bar placement we can alter grip width we can take out the arch um you can take off your gear and stuff it's not something i've done um with my lifters but i've done it myself so no knee sleeves no belts i've worn flats instead of heels um you know you, you have options there so those are the constraints that you can change them in the sport of powerlifting, task tends to be the one that you're going to alter the most. So I, I would watch somebody's competition lifts, see where it's breaking down, and I take into consideration, you know, everything, right? Everything that we know to be important. So I, I'd look back through their lifting logs, and if, you know, their last set RPEs are high, but all the lifts look a lot easier than that, okay, so confidence might be something that we need to work on here. Um... You know, the mechanical properties of the lifts. So if a lifter is pitching forward at the bottom of the squat, could it be weak, weak quads? Um, maybe, you know, the leg strength's just not caught up with the back strength. Um, you know, if they have that falling forward pattern on the squat, I'll kind of look at their deadlift. And if that happens there, all right, maybe that's something we want to build up. Right, so in that case, widening their legs. So, you know, we could do a sumo deadlift instead of the conventional for a block. Um, I think in a lot of cases, what I did off the bat is I slowed them down to see what it would look like from there. Because sometimes you just, it's just a loss of control. Um, you know, they're sacrificing their positions to gain a little bit of speed. So we would do a lot of tempo stuff. Um, but I, I would re I wanted to remove the comp lift. So in that case, I probably would go sumo deadlift, tempo squat, some type of wide stance squat. Um, and we would just kind of go from there. So I, I write everything in four-week blocks. And I like the idea of writing something week to week. But I think for me, um, if I write something week to week I would be too apt to change too quick instead of you know giving them an option something to play with and see how progress occurs because um, sometimes you get worse before you get better and like they need time to figure it out so I'll, I'll put a whole exercise in there for a block and we'll shift around the intensities and rep ranges and and all of that stuff and just kind of see what it looks like over the over the course of four weeks um, so I started to do this with a good handful, at least. 
of lifters. We'd run a block like that for four to eight weeks. They didn't touch a comp lift, and we'd bring it back in, and all of a sudden, their technique looks better. They're hitting, you know, I had one lifter take an opener from a couple months before for a set of five um, PRs on lifts, like all-time PRs, in the middle of training blocks when they've barely touched um, the comp lifts. I had um, Emo Danielle took 80% for a set of 10 the second week it got put back into her her program. We did just a little lamb wrap because I was just kind of curious how many reps she could actually take within. These were hard triples before. Um, so, you know, it obviously gave me confidence as a coach to start doing it more with everyone, kind of. And also doing that AMRAP with Danielle. Carrie, Carrie took 235 for a set of 10, which is like 80% also. Um, but we didn't remove the comp squats really from her um, lift, so I didn't include her in that. But, like, those couple of AMRAPs made me think, like, you know, even though they're putting those as last set RPs and it looks like there's a good amount of strain, we're definitely missing the mark here on intensity um, of lifts because you definitely want them to be probably within, you know, that 7 to, to 9 range. Um for our for RPE and clearly if we're taking you know Carrie and Danielle are taking 80% for triples or fours and they can take it for 10 we're nowhere near where we should be for the intensity so you know it, it sold me on the fact that I needed to like really start to to push weights a little more um, which kind of is going to bring me to my next topic but the weight on the bar is also a constraint so realizing that we're probably missing the mark right so here's that problem so I'm using volumes to dictate my training loads, but how do I know what volume is optimal for each lifter? You don't. It's it's a guess at best. So I needed to think of a way in which we can get a minimal training uh, stimulus and hard sets. So I'd been working with Hartman now for a couple of months at the time where I started doing this, maybe two, three months. Now I'm lifting heavy every every week. Like my top set is hard every, every time I come out. Um, and he actually was putting, he was telling me what weights to put on the bar next week based off of my performance this week. So he's just kind of letting performance dictate uh, the weight on the bar. So if I needed a break, obviously my weights would just be lighter than what they were if I had ever done that for that set and rep scheme before. Um, so it kind of just like made some bells go off. Like there it is. I can allow performance to dictate my actions um, and not rely so much on volume and make sure we're lifting heavy enough to get a training stimulus. So it kind of all works itself out. So we take one to two hard sets per lift per day. And by hard, I mean eight and a half to a nine and a half. Um, we still get those baseline volumes, so I use the acute chronic work ratio to make sure that we're still touching baseline volumes because I do think there's a protective component to it. And if I do want to drive volumes at some point, I need to make sure that um, our baselines are at least met so it doesn't take me so long to try to get that spike in workload. Um, so one to two hard sets, like I said. Um, and, you know, I think... I gained the confidence by removing those lifts, you know, and kind of proving that specificity thing to be incorrect. And these were lifters of all levels. Um, so I was just like, fuck it, this is what we're going to keep, keep running with. So I would watch them with these variations, see how they progress, maybe take them out, try the comp, lift again, see where improvements were made. Um, sometimes it's like, oh, I see a little bit of improvement. Maybe we just need to keep that other lift in there longer. Um, so what I started to do is like when, when I started to see those numbers on that lift, on that variation, tend to kind of stall out and they're kind of starting to take the same ones all the time. Um, for the hard sets, I would just throw a little wrinkle into it. So they'd obviously have to go backwards. So let's say we're doing a high bar wide stand squat for somebody pitching forward um, out of the hole. And for four weeks, they're doing it. It's going well. Weight seems to, you know, kind of be leveling out. Maybe we'll do a high bar wide stance 
two second pause on the halfway up. So now we're throwing a little wrinkle to it, same thing. We'll build that back up. And maybe it's just a variation and you know, they're able to kind of, yeah, it, it should be hotter and they're getting to numbers that are similar to the numbers that they were touching before, maybe for, you know, a rep less or, you know, it's somewhere within that, in that same range. And then all of a sudden, like, you're seeing an improvement in their, in their comp lift. Like it wasn't just a little improvement. It's a big improvement. So it could have been, I was just taking the variation out too soon before progress actually really stalled or they really figured it out. Um, or, you know, maybe me throwing a twist to it allows them to, to keep changing. I think, um, you know, I ha- my intuition says it's a, probably a little bit of both. Like, I'm leaving that variation in there, but just putting a little bit of a wrinkle into it to change it up a little bit to drive progress again, and it seems to work. Um, it seems to work pretty well. So, you know, I, I've, I still give the feedback and stuff, because I think if I get too quiet, um, a lot of my lifters would kind of get annoyed with me. Um, not annoyed, but not think I'm paying attention or something. Um, so finding a way to actually do both, right? I think, you know, there's probably some benefit to feedback because I'm telling them something and they think I'm invested, which I 100% am. Um, you know, and them knowing I'm invested probably helps buy in. Um, but at the same time, I got to be careful with the way that I word things. Um, because what I'm starting to learn, like through this constraints led approach, is I could say something today that gets an immediate fix. Um, let's say you know somebody's doing something in the squat. Let's, we'll just use knees out, right? Somebody's knees are caving in, and I'm, I tell them to push their knees out. Um, they could have short-term success with it, right? As soon as I tell them to do that, boom, squat looks squat looks good. I think I did my job. Pat myself on the back. But the problem is, is if they're focusing on my words, it becomes a conscious awareness of a movement. And what we actually need for a skill to be at a higher level is it needs to move from conscious to subconscious. So if there's conscious awareness, the problem is, is that when we throw more weight on it or the stress of competition, it's more easily perturbed. So basically that skill is not... When they go up on that platform and they're hitting their their attempts, chances are those knees are going to cave in again. And that probably came from me saying those words that day instead of putting them in a position for which they figured it out, which they can figure it out themselves. So, you know, I need to think about how I'm going to say these things um, because these are still, even though, you know, I've been learning about this stuff for about six months. Um, I still need to think about what I'm going going to say first to make sure that I, I truly understand it. So basically, instead of saying knees out, what I should have done is maybe said slow down. So if I you know slow down the speed of the way that they're coming up, maybe they can feel it a little bit better, or you know by doing that, I could put them in a tempo squat or something. You know. Um, you know, and what I've been doing is I've been doing that, but I've still been doing some of the other stuff too. So maybe if I'm a little bit more like just all in on this, we can see even even better results. It's just a matter of me kind of figuring out how to balance um, all of those things. So now with the way that I use the variations and stuff too is... I mean, we've been coming up with new ones all the time. Like, I'll sit there and, like, look at... It takes me a little bit longer to do it this way. Um, and I think, you know, if you are going to have an approach where you're looking at the whole person, like, it takes longer because you have to get to know them personally. You have to have conversations with them. Um, you have to let them know that you care. Um, you know, and to do this... I have 43 lifters, so to do this with all of those lifters, it's it's a lot. But it's, it's definitely worth it. Um, in the end and you know so I'll take all of that stuff into consideration I'll look at their lifts and how they're doing the variations and you know we have all these tools that we know to fix technique issues um, 
you know, we can slow things down. We can use accommodating resistance. Uh, we can change foot placement. Like, you know, we'll do all of those things. But even, you know, when you do those things. So I think, let me use an example here. Like in the powerlifting world, everybody has all these variations that fix these specific things. Like, and they tout them as if they're for everybody. But every learner is completely different. So a pause squat is not going to help teach everybody how to keep their knees out. Um, I think a good example was um, with pin squats last night. And this is kind of what gave me the idea to, to do this podcast and kind of get these thoughts out. Was I had programmed pin squats for this lifter. You know, decent volumes, like fives and fours and threes and stuff throughout the block. I'm watching it, and what I had realized was that even at decent weights, like 80 to 85%, this lifter's back was strong enough to even fight through bad positions off the pins, um, which is great. um, But it also isn't allowing that variation to work. Um, So... Um, I had a thought. Like, my first thought was they touched the pins and then they lifted two inches off the pins, pause briefly, or a couple inches off the pins, pause briefly, and then stand up, um, which some of you listening to this are going to get this. Um, but for me, I was like, ugh, you know, the, we'd have to drop the weight probably to do that. And this lifter has a chance of qualifying for nationals at a meet coming up not that long. We're not that far out. Um, So I'd rather load it. So the other thing that I thought we could do was just load the shit out of it to the point where, like, she just can't get away with with doing that until her back's not strong enough. Um, She actually got up to 290, so we got 50, 40 or 50 more pounds on this bar um, before that happened. But now what we're going to do is we're just going to take it for heavy singles every week. So instead of the volume, we're going to put that weight on it. And hopefully as she learns to... You know, keep the chest tall, everything moving together under those heavier weights. This should be good carryover. I think that's like, that's we're seeing that breakdown in the skill of a heavy squat um, by altering the task, right? Where we're throwing the pins in there and we're putting enough weight on there to actually punish that bad movement. Just doing pin squats is not necessarily going to fix that for for that lifter. I have other lifters who couldn't even get up to 80%, so they had to use light weights to build up pin squats. Like, you know, it's very different based off of each one, and you got to kind of, like, morph each variation towards that learner themselves so that they can figure it out, keeping in mind their competition schedule and the mechanical stress aspects of training. That stuff is still important. Um, So now that Emily's hitting heavier singles with that, with the pin squats... um, you know, we'll make sure we're getting all of our volume elsewhere um, so that we're not getting such a huge dip um, in training volume. Maybe that just means we add on another comp squat or something. Um, you know, this process of doing it, it's definitely very different. Um, and it's a learning experience, I think, not only for the lifters, but, but also for me because I haven't been... I've been attempting to coach in this manner for a period of time without really truly understanding the theories and the concepts around it. So as I develop more of an understanding of it, I'll probably get a little bit better at it too. And I know I'm still kind of clinging to some of the, the old ways of doing things. And I think it's because it's like, you know, that, that feedback I feel is important for a number of reasons. Um, I trust my abilities to get them in the right position to... Um, learn what they need to underneath the bar to develop those skills but I need to make sure like they're used to me giving more feedback so I need to find a way to give my feedback in a better manner and I think one of the things that I'm leaning towards is actually like picking and choosing like videos Um, like everybody here they video their sets so having them pick up on some breakdowns of it and just you know without me kind of directing them towards an action figure out words in a way in which I can let them still self-organize into better technique um but 
as of now, like the even though you know there's stuff that I'm doing that kind of goes against a constraints led approach. The constraints led approach has yielded some really nice progress. Um, I had about 30 people that ran it over the course of three months, give or take three months, um, and the amount of PRs that people were hitting, um, 22 of them literally took 90% for triples, 90% or more for triples, 100% for doubles or all-time PRs. And, um, you know, it's not, that's such a high percentage. And, and the other ones just haven't had that opportunity yet. Like we were working on things, we haven't pushed things um, to the point where that they've had the opportunity to figure that out. Um, to see where the, where they're at with with those um, with those aspects, um, it'll be interesting to see how we can um, keep it rolling. So, like right now, basically, I'm just kind of letting progress dictate training. Uh, I, I I use frequencies a lot. I, I do change the frequencies. Um, we'll deadlift once, we'll bench twice. I'll actually spread out the squats to three days instead of the two. Um, and then when that stops working a little bit or it starts stalling, we'll go to two squat days, but they'll squat twice in that day with bench, bench in the middle. Um, we'll deadlift a second day, we'll add a day of bench, and even later on we might add a fourth day of bench. Um, so I, I do use frequencies under those situations to drive progress. Um, it, the variations, making sure that they're in good good positions and thinking of ways in which I can give them an experience to fix the issue that's going on. And what's nice is like somebody's knees are caving in and you put them in a wide stance and knees cave in harder, right? And say, you know, they're not really getting it with the wide stance. Maybe now we do wide stance tempo squats or pause on the halfway up with the wide stance. Maybe we put the bar lower and see if, you know, we can add, add some weight to it. Um, you know, you can wide stance with chains. We can do a bunch of variations in that position to fix it, get it stronger, build it up, um, and then see where it takes us. Like, powerlifting is kind of a, a unique sport because you most of my people compete two to three times a year. So you're, you're talking again four to six months um, between competitions, um, which is a long period of time to work on things. Um, so just not being so like rigid with the volumes of the mechanical stress stuff and just kind of letting progress dictate things, doing more of the coaching aspect and giving them exercises that give them experiences so that four to six months later, they put on a bigger total, I think is nice um, and can work really well. Um, one of the other things that I, I would do before a competition too is the competition lift percentage would go way up and variations would go down. But the crazy thing to think of is when variations are high, volumes higher than normal, like everybody's hitting PRs. So why would I do anything different closer to a meet? Um, and it's just basically built off of this thought that specificity plays a massive role. Yeah, there will be comp squats in there. It's not like I wouldn't have any comp squats in closer to a competition, but I could probably get away with one day of comp squats and maybe, you know, in a block, maybe there's a week or two where you're getting two days of comp squats or 50% of the reps come from comp squats um, so that they are getting enough practice with it. And we could do higher volume days of comp squats and still push a variation. Like there are all these options that we still have leading up to a competition. And I'm going to just allow kind of the lifter's progress to dictate where I take it even leading up to a competition um, typically we test 17 to 22 days out and I taper from there um, I'll probably still do that for most um, but uh, you know we'll see we'll kind of um, I'll see you know where where progress where progress takes me. I'm gonna let that dictate everything. Uh, maybe I just put singles in and we just take singles for you know a few weeks. I don't know. It's something that I gotta think about when I sit down and like plan out everybody's like competition stretches. Um, and I think one of the things too that like I used to be like 
you know, let, let's go easy because you don't have a meet four to six weeks out. But like if everything's lining up and feeling good for the lifter, right? And I think, you know, this is something that's often overlooked, right? The emotions at the emotion aspect of the lifter, if their mood and confidence is high, take what's there when it's there. So if I can in a block because life is just going so well for this lifter, if I can get, you know, 20 pounds on their on their total at that point in time, I'm going to take it. And then when things get shitty and I have to pull back, like if they're having a tough time of things, like outside of the gym that's affecting their performance or something or like whatever it may be, I can pull back then. Um, and we can just maintain what we've already increased. And sometimes you can still squeak out a little bit extra. Um, for deloads and light days, I'm letting the same thing. I'm letting how they feel kind of dictate that. So kind of the only way we can monitor fatigue and powerlifting is with, you know, those little nagging things that come up, like the elbow pain, you know, your knee might be sore, a little lower back pain. Um, I shouldn't even say pain, discomfort. Um, as long as mechanics aren't altered, strength is still there. Like what any what people are comfortable pushing through, will push through, and we'll just kind of let progress dictate it. If they're feeling a little banged up, lifts are stalling out, or they feel they need like just a complete like reboot. All right, we'll throw in a little a little deload week in there, you know, and we'll come back. We'll run the numbers for a week or two. We'll kind of like when they're ready again, we'll we'll push it again. Um, and that's kind of how we're doing things. It's much more like open-ended. It's more coaching involved, less dealing with the, the less trying to make the aspects of training that we just deem as written in stone that I think over time we're going to realize what we really know about how these measures affect training is far less and even we know that they do affect training, but we can't even monitor it if, uh, if we wanted to. Um, I think that's about all I want to say about this up until, you know, for this period of time. Um, we can kind of follow everything that we're doing. I've been writing a lot about these topics on the blog, um, which you have links to on Instagram. Follow our team, Precision Powerlifting Systems. Um, my personal page, KWCAN. Stay strong, Boston.